So we're going to start our dive headfirst into uh, James chapter 1, verse 1. And we're going to be talking a little bit about bondservants. Uh, so let's get started. Father, we thank you for this time that we have together. Lord, we thank you for your word. And Father, I just speak a blessing over this message. Lord, that whatever needs to be gotten from it, that it would make it to the heart of the hearer and truly bless their lives and bring them closer to you. And we give you the praise for this in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so let's get started. What is a bondservant, and what do we value? In James 1.1 we read, James, a bondservant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve disciples who are scattered abroad, greeting. The word we're going to be focusing on is bondservant. It's the Greek word doulos. Slaves devoted to another to the disregard of one's own interest. Uh, it's putting someone else before you whether you want to or not. So how does a bondservant work and what's the difference between a servant or a slave and a bondservant? Um, to really understand this, we're going to have to take a look at ancient Hebrew culture. We have a very common cultural understanding of slavery. Uh, we understand that early America had roughly 10% of all the slaves owned throughout the world, uh, most of those being black. There were, by record, a few white people in slavery, but they were minimal to be, say anything about it is almost <laughs> negligible and not worth it. Muslim countries accounted for roughly 80 to 85 percent of slavery, which left the rest of the world uh, at about 10 to 5 percent of slavery. Uh, the we know from biblical recordings that the Israelites were slaves in Egypt, uh, and slavery was not something that you typically chose. It was something that was forced on you, or you were born into it. You weren't. Nobody walked up, woke up one morning and said, Oh, hey, I want to be a slave. All right? uh, but it's important to note that in ancient cultures, not all slaves are treated poorly in every single case. Um, so as we move on, we find that a lot of slavery in much more advanced cultures was a lot like being a maid without pay. But in most cultures that were not as advanced as, say, Roman culture or Israelite culture, their lives weren't valued. Uh, they just didn't matter as people. They were just there to be used for whatever chore or task was given to them, and whether they lived or died was unimportant. All right. But Israel was different, and they had to be, because God cares about people. And it didn't matter what station you held in life. The bottom line was God cares about people. So God gave the children of Israel laws regarding how to treat slaves. Uh, it was protection for them. Because, again, and I, can't, I cannot stress this enough, God cares about people. And it didn't matter how much money you made. It didn't matter if you made no money. Uh, it didn't matter if you owned property or didn't own property. Uh, it should be noted that the tribe of Levi 
which were the priests for the tabernacle and the temple, did not own property. They weren't allowed. They were priests. Their inheritance was being the priests. Uh, so the different tribes would give them land and give them housing so that they would have some sort of hold in the nation of Israel. All right, But a man who abused his servant could be punished under the law of God. So we need to take a look at what a servant or a slave is and actually get into this. Uh, it's someone who is forced into a position of being submitted to the will of another person with no choice in the matter. Right? We kind of touched that a little bit earlier today. Uh, this wasn't always the case, though. In Israel, you could actually make yourself a slave. If you owed a debt uh, to someone that you were not able to pay back with financial resources, you could actually make yourself an indentured servant. So it was done by your free will for the purpose of paying off your debt. So what about when the debt is finally paid off? Okay, In Exodus 21, 5-6 we read, But if the servant plainly says, I love my master, my wife, and my children, I will not go out free. Then his master shall bring him to the judges. He shall also bring him to the door or the doorpost, and his master shall pierce his ear with an awl, and he shall serve him forever. So the debt was paid, and the servant decided to stay. This was by his own will and his own choice. Why would anyone do that? Well, you read earlier on that sometimes a servant could gain a wife while being a servant. Uh, you could have children. But just because his debt was paid off, it didn't necessarily mean that his wife's debt was paid off or that his wife was free to go. Now, he could gain his freedom, go do his thing, still be married to his wife, visit her, do, do the whole nine yards. But any servant who was in a position to be marrying another servant and having children under their master, typically, not in every single case, but typically, would have a decent relationship with their master, one where they're provided for. So why would someone do this? There would have to be some kind of benefit. The servant would have to have been cared for by the master. He would have have to have been valued. Because nobody in their right mind would choose an abusive master or a master that just didn't care about you. And when I say nobody in their right mind, we're going to get into that. So we also have a debt. Uh, that debt is to sin. All right, we're all born into this debt. Sin's debt is eternal death. God the Father sent Jesus, the Son, to pay that debt. So now we owe a debt to God. Interestingly enough, we're not obligated to pay that debt. Because we can either pay sin's debt, or we can pay God's debt. And you can accept that or deny it, but the debt is still there. And you're still going to pay it. And it doesn't matter who you're paying, you're going to pay. But the price was already paid for, for everyone. Not everyone has to go to one, one place or another. You have the freedom to choose. You could go to hell. You could go to heaven. But that choice is always yours to make. 
and no one else. Technically speaking, it's not even really God's choice to make on your behalf. He provided a way, offering you a choice, but he can make that choice. All right, and this price was paid for everyone. It doesn't matter who it is. It was paid for Hitler. If he had repented and turned, he could have made it into heaven. It's for bullies at schools. It's for the employees at your job that drive you crazy and make you want to tear your hair out because annoying employees and we've all been there it's for the family members that you think there's no hope for there is hope it's for the lowest of the low the greatest of the great and even the mediocre the one that's not terrible or not great at anything but see the bottom line is we've been slaves our whole lives whether we want to admit to it or not, whether we like it or not. Romans 6.16 Do you not know that to whom you present yourself slaves to obey, you are that one's slaves whom you obey, whether of sin leading to death, or of obedience leading to righteousness? We have either been a slave to sin, or we've been a slave to God. There's no middle ground here. You're going to obey one, or you're going to obey the other. So why leave one master for another? Right? It would make no sense. If you're already a slave to a slave to somebody, why would you go leave to be a slave for somebody else? Well, you have to stop and ask the question. If we all start out as slaves to sin, what good has sin given us? Sexual sin leads to death. Lying causes a loss of loss of trust. Stealing leads to losing trust. Coveting leads to leaves us empty and jealous. Pride will always leave us empty. Pride also leads to destruction. And that's because there's nothing we won't do to satisfy our pride. That's just within our nature is we have pride and we want it satisfied and it doesn't matter who gets hurt in the process, we'll satisfy it. And that's true for about 90% of the population. But still, why leave one master for another? In Romans 2.4, we read, Or do you despise the riches of his goodness, forbearance, and long-suffering, not knowing that the goodness of God leads you to repentance? Now, that word goodness is the Greek word Christos. It means fit or fit for use, useful, virtuous, or good. So, it was his goodness or usefulness that led us to repentance. At some point, we identify that there is something useful about the Father. So we have to ask the question, what is that? So we'll have to back up just a little bit, because what we find is that the consequences of being a slave to sin is death. It's a spiritual death, meaning our spirit dies and goes to hell, and it will be there for eternity. So realistically, it's not a debt that we can really pay without costing us literally everything. So we found out that at some point, God was good to pay our debt. That he was powerful enough and loving enough to fill in that space, to pay that debt that would cost us everything. It already cost him everything. 
He paid it in full. And now all we have to do is, you know, apply for debt relief. So he was useful for debt relief. So now we're debt free from sin. That's the reason why we go to him. We choose the life of a servant. We went from having a bad master to having a good master. From a master of death to a master of life. This is why we're, we are willing to enslave ourselves. Which brings us to value systems. So we're now talking about value systems. And value systems are exactly what they sound like. It's a system that you value above anything else. You believe what you want to believe has true value. Um, and this may, may or may not be true, right? Sometimes we have value placed in something that does have actual value, true value. Something that's beneficial. And other times, it's not true. Right? In most cases, that would be sin. Typically, when we talk about value systems, we're talking about sin because that's the big that comes up. All right? That's what we're typically led off by. Uh, it's something that makes us feel good. It gratifies our flesh. Um, so typically, when I reference a value system, I'm talking about bad value systems. So stay with me on this, because this is not the only case. James 1, verses 13 through 15. We're jumping ahead here, and we're reading out of the New King James Version. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am tempted by God. For God cannot tempt by... For God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he himself tempt anyone. But each one is tempted when he is drawn away by his own desires and enticed. Then, when desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. So right there we have the, value, the foundation for so many value systems in people's lives. In fact, so many it's almost mind-boggling, right? And here's the thing. James was writing to the church. This wasn't written to unbelievers. This wasn't written to uh, people who hadn't received Christ. This is written to current believers in churches that he was communicating with. So we have to ask the question, what do we value in our lives? What lies have we believed about something that we say has value? Okay, And this is where it gets interesting. Because, see, no one commits an act of sin unless they think it will gain them something, right? No one can be tempted to sin unless there is already a desire there for the sin. So here's a silly example, right? You can't tempt me with okra. There's nothing good about it to me. It's not a food source, as far as I'm concerned. I've tried it in every possible configuration, cooked every possible way, and I know people are going to say, oh, well, you haven't had it fried. And I say, yes, I did. And they're like, well, if it's not fried right, it's slimy. Well, it wasn't slimy, but it still wasn't good. <laughs> okay? So there's absolutely nothing you can say or do that will make me want to eat okra. Now, if you pointed a gun at me, I'd probably sit down and eat the okra, but that's about as 
far as you'd have to go to get me to that point. Bacon, on the other hand, is a different story. I love bacon. There's almost nothing you can do that will make me not want to eat it. Okay. Now let's use a real world example. Um, and this one is far more common and far more prevalent in the church than people are willing to admit to. Pornography. Virtually every man and almost every woman out there has been exposed to it. Almost every man and many women have an addiction to it. The level of those addictions vary from person to person. But the bottom line is, they have an addiction. Now, years ago, I used to have an addiction to this as well. Why would I watch something as perverted as that? Well, I believed in my emotions that I was gaining something from it. I was single my entire life until I met my wife. And that's not meant to be a sob story or an excuse. Okay? That's just where I was emotionally. I was single. I was lonely. Uh, I had been exposed to porn for the first time when I was 21. Curiosity is what brought me back to it. Because I'd seen it, and once you see that stuff, it tends to get into your brain and it sits there. If you don't deal with it anyways. So curiosity about what I had seen brought me back to it. And I kept going back for more and more. Because it had changed from being something that was curious to something that was actually feeding my endorphins. Feeding all the hormones and uh, processes in my brain that were getting me high. It became an addiction. The physical pleasure that came along with watching the porn was mostly the thing that kept me coming back. Because it felt good in my emotions while I was doing it. Because it felt good, I felt it had value. I felt it was gaining me some kind of relief and comfort. I was wrong, logically, and I knew that logically it was wrong. But emotionally it felt good. So I kept going back. And here's the tricky thing, is that emotions will almost always win over logic in every person's life. You can rationalize something till the day you die. You can talk about how wrong something is. You can talk about why you shouldn't do it. You can reason it out in your mind. But ultimately, if in your emotions you feel that you're gaining something from it, you're going to go back to it. Because that's just how we are wired. Our emotions will override our logic nearly every time. So, the catch here is that we as men, very specifically men, are told that we don't have emotions. And this is one of the biggest lies that have been perpetrated in our lives. It allows men to continue in their sins, believing that they are being completely logical, even though they're not. Logically, there is no justification for sin, because sin brings death. It's a proven fact. I believed that I wasn't hurting anyone. There was no real sex happening, so no one was being hurt. That was the lie that gave me an open door to keep going back to the porn. Okay? So emotionally, because I wasn't hurting anyone presently in my company, and I couldn't hear anyone say, you're hurting me, and I wasn't there to see anyone else expressing emotions about being hurt, 
I was able to logic my way into that no one was being hurt. So there I was going back to it over and over and over again. And things got bad, as they always will with anything that is related to sin. I went from watching it when I felt like it to needing to watch it every single day. If I didn't watch it, I had this gnawing itch in the back of my mind that wasn't satisfied until I watched some. I would wake up in the middle of the night if I hadn't watched any that day. And the sad thing is, I would consume about two hours of it per night before I could actually go to sleep. And it was at that point when I started losing sleep and it started affecting my day-to-day life that all of my logic, all of my reason, all of my emotions weren't enough to make me realize or to keep me in that sin. I knew I needed help and God knew it too. And see, that's when God had a buddy of mine drag me to a pure man conference. He had fallen in love with the pastor's daughter of the church he was going to, and they were responsible for this thing called the pure man conference. It was at that conference I learned what my sin was doing to me physically, psychologically, and spiritually. I saw the truth of my sin, basically. I saw the damage, and I learned how it was damaging not just me, but others around me, and the women in the videos that I was watching. Now that I saw that the things I valued as being something I gained were not actually gaining me anything, now I was able to see the sin for what it was and hate it. And the truth is, you won't give up on something if you don't genuinely hate it. We've heard the saying, hate the sin and not the sinner. Well, this applies to ourselves as well, because as we all know, sin deceives. As the other saying goes, it will keep you longer than you wanted to stay, take you farther than you wanted to go, and cost you more than you wanted to pay. This was true in my life, and I knew it was true in literally every other Christian's life. Maybe not the same exact sin, but there is something. I know this because we are all human, and we all mess up. Now, this isn't a slam against anyone, but it is a wake-up call. When I stopped valuing the sin in my life, and saw it for the death that it was, I was able to hate it. Genuinely hate it. And then I was able to take the sin off. Yes, I said I was able to take the sin off. Not somebody else. Colossians 3, verses 5 through 10. And again, we're reading in the New King James Version. That's Colossians 3, 5 through 10. Therefore, put to death your members which are on the earth, fornication, uncleanness, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. Because of these things, the wrath of God is coming upon the sons of disobedience, in which you yourselves once walked when you lived in them. But now you yourselves are to put off all these, anger, wrath, malice, blasphemy, filthy language out of your mouth. Do not lie to one another, since you have put off the old man with his deeds, and have put on the new man who is renewed in knowledge according to the image of him who created him. This is something we are commanded to do to ourselves. I did not go to Jesus and say, I'm done with it, can you take it away please? Because that's not how it works. We are commanded to put off the sin. Jesus gave us both the power and the authority through him to be able to do that. 
So if we put it on by our free will, we must, by our free will, take it off. Because Jesus will never go against our free will. And simply asking him to is not really your free will. You must be active in this relationship with him, and that's the only way. It takes two to get the job done. His power and authority given to us, and our will to utilize it. It's not going to happen just because you sit there and say, Dear Jesus, I'm tired of my sin, please take it away and make me better. Because the truth of the matter is, is that until you are willing to take it off, you are willing to cast it off, you're not ready to give it up. In my own life, once the sin was removed, I could see the value of the purity I had gained. I could see the areas of my emotions that were being healed. The pent-up anger I had was beginning to be removed. I still had some anger that was that I needed to take off. But the stuff related to the porn was coming off. It was about that time that God was setting me up to grow into the man he intended me to be. He was preparing me for marriage, and I had no idea. And there was no way that he was going to let his daughter marry a guy with a porn addiction. All this applies to anything that we struggle with in life. Gaining the freedom isn't hard. It might be some work, but it isn't hard. Maintaining the freedom is work, but it isn't hard. If you value the relationship you have with Jesus over the sin, you will not want to go back. You can't tempt me with okra because okra is gross. Period. There's no room for discussion or debate. You can't tempt me with porn because it breaks my heart. I value the relationship I have with Jesus, and I don't want to cause a breach in that relationship. And I know that my sin, not just the porn, but any sin, causes a breach in that relationship. I value the marriage that I have with my wife, and I do not ever want to see the hurt that is in her eyes that will result if she ever caught me in porn. I value myself and the new man that Jesus created in me. And I don't want to sacrifice that by rolling around in mud and filthying myself with the world. The idea of value systems applies to many other areas in life as well. Do we value the Word of God and spend time in it every day? Do we value our relationship with Jesus, spend time in prayer and worship every day? This is not a guilt trip or a slam on anyone listening. It's not meant to make you feel bad or guilty. It's meant as a call-out to examine your value systems, to determine what you want and find out why you want it. If you value Netflix over reading the Word, ask Jesus why. You may have a change overnight. It may take several overnights. And don't fall into condemnation if you miss a day here or there. Just make it a habit, like flossing. No one likes to floss, but we do it because our teeth need it. Read because your soul needs it, and it will transform you if you allow it. And that's about all we have for today. Thank you for joining me, and uh, I hope to see you next time in the next podcast. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this. We thank you for the time that we have with you. We thank you for your love, for your patience. And Lord, we thank you that you do want to see us set free. You do want to see us filled with your life in abundance. And we give you the praise for it all in Jesus' name. Amen.